Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. It's always so great to be with you. Always so much to talk about. And today we decided to talk about a crazy article that we read in the New York Times of the, uh, from a couple days ago an article about a book called More. And the author is called Molly Rodden, or Rodin Winter. Molly Rodin Winter. And she recounts the highs and lows of, get this, juggling an open marriage with work and childcare. The busy woman. <laughs> and the New York Times, you know, gives it, gives it a fair shake, gives it a positive. I think what I detect in the New York Times article is that they see it as just another way to flourish if you can make it work. And that women's lives are hard, yes, hard lives. And if an open marriage is going to help you live more deeply and more intensely, well, then that's just another choice. And I guess if you've got all the right implements and you're energetic enough, then you can make it work. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a more cynical take. (laughs) I think the New York Times absolutely put their thumb on the scale for this woman. You know, I think they could have equally decided to just trash the book and say, this lady's nuts. This lifestyle is horrible. This is wrong. Let's back up and remember that up until not that long ago, polyamory, polygamy, bigamy, they were regarded, you know, kind of with a cultural unanimity with disdain. And I mean, well, Abraham wait, and Lincoln... Not, and not only that, if anybody on the conservative side said, but wait, when you talk about sort of opening, right, change sexuality, the definition of marriage. change the definition yeah, we were, of marriage, we, were for every, saying this we is said, but, but then next, if you say that two men can marry, then why not three men or two men and a woman? And of course, everybody was mocked roundly, right? They're like, oh, oh that, yeah, that slippery slope does not actually exist. Oh, but of well, course it are. exists because <laughs> nearing sex, the bottom. sex Although, either, right, I don't know. I don't know if we've hit bottom, actually. But sex either belongs in a certain space that's safe and noble and dignified, and that space is called marriage, or it just belongs everywhere. And yeah. and this is this article in the New York Times is a is a great example. So yeah, so keep going. Well, you know, I was gonna say Abraham Lincoln once called polygamy one of the twin relics of barbarism because it overwhelmingly objectifies women. And you know, I was looking <clears throat> back at some of the recent polling on this, and the polling is very alarming. And we should we should cover that because this is definitely something that's being destigmatized, mainstreamed, I would argue glamorized. You know, we've seen book, and we've seen the paint, playbook. We know how it's gonna work, right? You're gonna start they, seeing it in um in movies and shows as sort already, of an outside you see it as as not the main people, not the protagonist, but there's like a couple or three or a throuple or something on the sidelines who are already sort of living that and they're very sympathetic. That's how they start bringing it in, right? Right. And they portray those people, though, as they're highly educated, they're smart, they're sophisticated. I'm thinking of the Paul Giamatti show that I do not recommend. No, this is there is a push to mainstream this and we need to have our eyes 
very wide open about it um, because it's definitely growing in popularity among young people who are understandably disenchanted about marriage. So I just read that Pew Research Foundation found that more people under the age of 30 than less view polyamory as acceptable, 51%. So if you're under the age of 30 and you don't think polyamory is okay, you're in the minority. It's a big minority, but it's still, it is the now minority view among the next generation. And that's terrifying. Well, they've been raised on a steady diet of if you're an adult and this is what feels good to you, you should do it. And if every, anybody stands in your way, then they're just yucking your yum, right? They're just um, they're just wrecking your your vibe for nothing because it's just a kind of selfish tut-tutting and, and imposition of your own values when you shouldn't do that. That's how they've been raised to think that way. So this woman in this book, Molly wrote in winter, this is a review of the book, her book called More. What is her life like? So so she achieves this, right? She has a husband and an, uh, and an open marriage. And she's also, she has a child and she has work. How is she managing all that? What's sort of twisted about all of this is that she's managing it quite well. You know, she's inked a book deal. She's probably going to sell out of books. She's <laughs> profiled in the New York Times. And this is, this is their, this is how they do this is instead of portraying the reality, which is that 92% of these marriages actually end in divorce. They pick the one freak one that's working probably because they're both crazy narcissists and somehow have decided to live this way. Forget about the fact that her two sons, they don't talk about the emotional impact on them. They just talk about the fact that one of them read the book, one of them didn't. Gross. Um, it's very sexually explicit, the book. Is I haven't it? read the book, but the article suggests that it's very sexually explicit. In fact, the article itself is a little bit explicit. And so I would actually recommend <laughs> readers not to read the article. And it's a challenge because you don't want to give this woman any more attention because it's so um, gross. But it's, I, I'm sorry, again, I just think it's, it's so important that uh, we recognize this is where things are going and it's going really fast. And we have already lost the um, you know, the war of ideas with the next generation who are overwhelmingly embracing the idea of polyamory. And so I guess <clears throat> it presents a challenge, which is how do we, despite the fact that we have more social science at our fingers than ever before, that makes it abundantly clear that the best way for happiness, good mental health outcomes, good physical health outcomes, good financial outcomes is to be in a committed, monogamous, traditional marriage with children. We somehow have to convince the culture in the next generation that monogamy is something worth living. But what if you believe, you really believe that sexual, your sexual fulfillment is at the root of your happiness, of your fulfillment as a person. Like if you're, what if you really believe, and I think we've been telling people this for a while, the culture I mean, what if you really, really believe that unless you're sexually fulfilled, your life is worthless? Like you will feel. Well, that's an interesting, I mean, challenge that I think we should be up to, which is, okay, well define sexual fulfillment because if you're in an open marriage, you have a nine and 10, 90% odds of divorcing. Who's going to be having a more sexually active life? Somebody who's married or somebody who's divorced? I actually don't know the answer to that question, but <laughs> you might, um, you might and, and not all sex is created equal. You know, promiscuous sex does not lead to, is not fulfilling. We know that. We know that for a fact. You know, there are 
you couldn't been more books written about this than I can even keep track of now. The fact that promiscuous, non-committed sex is not fulfilling, at least to women. But people aren't reading books. They're watching shows. They're watching movies. They're listening right. to podcasts. And if you just sit down one afternoon and you and you go through whatever's the top 10 on Netflix, every, yeah. there's every indication in every one of those shows almost that the idea of of a, of a normal human a romantic relationship begins with sex, right? Like you yeah. meet someone and you become, become, I don't even, it's hard even to use the word romance, but if you even become fixed on them for a moment, right? Like your, your attention is fixed on them, that immediately leads to sex. And yeah. then, but that, and that that's normal. Like that's the, that's the way people are interested in each other. Like two people couldn't find a way into each other's hearts that didn't start with, the, with their genital contact, for instance. Like that, that idea has escaped the, the culture entirely. It really suggests how important it is to screen what your kids are watching, oh, you know, yeah. especially your teens. I mean, I know we sound like broken records about this, but <laughs> um, no, you're right. It's we have sort of won the on the factual grounds, but that doesn't seem to matter to people. They, no. they seem to be much more influenced by what they consume culturally and, you know, I don't know what the solution is on that front, but it's, it's certainly every day more, more the, the effort to uh, sort of re-engineer the way people view marriage through entertainment, movies, music is, is a really serious area when, of concern. When I, when I have this conversation uh, with different people, they often say, well, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You're never going to convince people that sex belongs in marriage and that marriage is one man and one woman. That's just, that's just out, too out there now. It's just too, par too far behind us. It's in the rearview mirror so far away. It's, it's lost in the midst of, of antiquities. But then I sometimes say to them, when I was growing up and right into my 20s, people, everyone smoked. Yeah, I I used to smoke in movie theaters, in airplanes, in in elevators, in my dorm room, and the in the cafeteria at at college and in and in high school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and one day, society said, "You know what? This is giving lots of people emphysema and lung cancer, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be allowed, even though people like it, and even though it's really cool and it's very fulfilling, and people love nicotine. I still like nicotine, but." we decided as a society that it was causing too much damage. Do you think that as a society we could decide that 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 unbridled sexuality is causing too much damage to the entire fabric of society? I don't know. I, I don't think that's possible as long as the current cohort of liberals are at the levers of influence. Um, I don't know. I just think they're too dug in. Um, to reverse that. So I think it's going to have to be sort of like a generational shift. And there certainly is like, you know, there's been a new crop of books coming out by kind of young, more center, center left writers, you know, like Christine Emba, I actually don't know what her politics are, but she, you know, she writes for the Washington Post, raising questions about um, things like promiscuity, the hookup culture, is this actually hurting women? Are women benefiting from this? But 
Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, I'm always coming back to Mary Eberstadt's um, book. It's almost more of like a long article, Primal Screams, where she basically argues that, you know, some of this may kind of fade out or die out because people will be so you know, unable to function and form families because they're so disfigured by like this emotionally is, we're, disfigured. We're watching this in action, I think, when you look at the yeah. mental health stats in young people and their, inab and their inability yeah. to form families, right? And this is only going to escalate tremendously as the current 15-year-olds grow up and, and right. so on. Right, and I think about how hard it is, like how much goes into having a family as somebody who has like a very solid foundation, like I had a very stable, emotional, happy upbringing, two married parents, still married, you know, I, I can't imagine trying to do that without sort of the that foundation there, you know, to, to draw on. And so it raises the question of where does this all end? I mean, this is so bleak, this is so bleak, but, but you know, I'm just kind of fired up because I find the sort of brazenness of that memoir and the article a really kind of an affront. Like their masks are off now and they're not even trying to hide the fact that they want polyamory to be cool and to be this like Park Slope Brooklyn feminist thing. And so <clears throat> that's why I think it's important to talk about it and call a spade a spade and... <clears throat> And at least make the effort. It's worth it's worth defending monogamy. You know, it's something worth fighting for and not just throwing up our hands and saying, oh, these people are crazy. Good luck to you. You know, like. But if we defend monogamy, <laughs> if we start, if we try to defend the family and monogamy on the on the basis of the practical matters, right? Like how can practically a marriage endure and a, and a household not be divided and, and not end in divorce and the children not be uh, having to live with separate parents. And if we try to use all those practical things, we're going to, I think, find ourselves in the same problem that we've had all this time with all the other things we said. Like everyone knows divorce is a bad idea, right? And yet, right. And yet divorce is more and more accepted. It's more, it's just a not, now it's a, a fact of life. People certain percentage of people will get divorced and, and we all accept that as, as, as true. And there's very little talk about how to roll that back. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, what's so interesting about divorce though, is that, um, you know, he, the author, I'm forgetting his name. He wrote the book coming apart. What he talks about Jonathan is that Haidt? like d divorce rates among well-educated, wealthy people are actually quite low. Um, it's among, you know, low, lower income and just marriage rates in general um, among lower income, middle-class families, that's where you're seeing the decline. So there's such a hypocrisy because, you know, these people, these cultural influencers are actually living pretty traditional lives. Like they're overwhelmingly in the traditional monogamous long-term marriages but they want to normalize all the other crazy stuff that ends up wreaking emotional havoc on everybody else. Well, do you see polyamory making its inroads more deeply into the lower income? Well, maybe, social but you know, let's be real. Like, people are already living polyamory. They're, you know, they're they're not getting married to the parents of their, you know, to the 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 mother and father of their child. They're 
bringing people home from bars. I mean, like we already kind of have like a mass polyamorous society. Mm-hmm. We just don't call it that. We call it hookup culture, freedom, divorce, what have you. We haven't, have we haven't you, enshrined like, it in law, which is the next thing that will happen now that you can yeah. marry anyone, uh, regardless of the sex, then obviously the next level is you can marry two people or four or eight. Right. And, and mean, really on the, basis, on, the, on, on the legal basis of love is love, which has been enshrined in law, right? Um, how do you stop on that basis? If, if two men can marry, how do you legally say, well, three men can't marry? You can't, right? I can't imagine how. Yeah, I don't know where this ends legally, but I know that, you know, we're already, children are already being moved around between different homes, different, you know, between multiple moms, multiple dads. And so, you know, this, this push to kind of make it seem almost like this elite sexy thing is, is just another part of what I think is the broader, the broader agenda to basically just uh, unravel the nuclear family once and for all. But ironically they're doing this while reaping the benefits of living the stable emotional and financial life that comes as living a traditional nuclear family Mm -hmm. so it's um it's just you brought up you brought up uh children you brought up children several times and last week uh, i had on the show katie faust who is a child's rights advocate and advocate and her her platform is called them before us and her argument is that we have consistently and every day worse uh, put the sexual gratification of adults before the most basic rights of children. And she says children, and I believe her and 100%, I back this up, children have the right to grow up with their mother and father, their biological mother and father in, in an intact home. That is a right that children have. And that's an interesting way to think about it, don't you think, Ashley? Yeah, well, I think we have it all reversed. Like we don't, you're absolutely right. I mean, we should be thinking about the rights of the child, um, you know, starting in the womb, which should be, you know, a safe space. Mm -hmm. All this talk about safe space. And it's like the first place that a child exists is the most dangerous place in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. And, you know, so talking about, you know, protecting the child's right to a safe space, um, and and absolutely thinking there is no um no thought or regard given to the rights of children which is ironic because you know you walk down city streets and you get stopped by these people campaigning for children's rights and things but um or whale rights the rights of whales here in miami (laughs) and dolphins (laughs) but no i mean we unfortunately this is a vulnerability in our like hyper individualized society is that it's all about when it's all about the individual the most vulnerable members of society lose out and they're certainly the losers in an open marriage situation um and but you know then when we get back to mainstreaming polyamory polygamy whatever uh, women are going to be the losers because we're the ones who have the most to gain from the stability of marriage by having a committed partner who's there when the results of living out, you know, sexual antics uh, turn into very real world realities known as pregnancy and babies. 
I have to read you. I have to read you a line from the article. That's just so classic because it goes along with what you're saying. Winter, Winter is the author. Winter had to cast off internalized sexism and her tendency to put others' needs before her own. Issues she worked through in therapy. Imagine. Imagine that you go to therapy and you say, I have this tendency to care for others and to hope that they're doing well you know, and to I would put say, myself Gracie, out there for them. <laughs> I would say, Gracie, that actually the sexism is suggesting that she needs to get over that because that is a maternal instinct. Women are significantly, that is part of what defines us is that we are givers. I mean, we first and foremost give our bodies, but we are the ones that are help shape families and societies because we put others' needs first. And arguing that that's something you need to get over, in my opinion, is sexist because it. You're, you're talking about getting over your, your femininity, getting over yeah, what it makes strikes you a woman. Womanhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the constant struggle that we're in in this society is like nature versus reality, you know, nature that, you know, do you accept nature and do you live in harmony with it or do you try to obliterate it? And that's really what's at, te- you know, the tension here. But anyways, it's tragic. And I also think it's the beauty of the Christian life is that we know that we live for others. And ultimately, that's where true happiness and fulfillment is to be found. And I feel like that's, you know, kind of our evangelical mission is to is to tell the world that and show the world that, that, you know, everybody's yearning for this happiness, a, a deep meaning, a sense of purpose and fulfillment and happiness. And you're going to find that by living um, not the way the culture tells you to live. Well, those are perfect words to end on, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me today on Conversations with Consequences. Make sure to Thanks, visit Gracie. Make sure to visit the catholicassociation.org to learn more about Ashley and the rest of us. Last week I published a piece in Angelus News. It's a publication from the Arch- Archdiocese of LA where I'm a columnist. I have been for a long time and it's it's some of the the my favorite things that I do is write for Angelus. Um, I get to be my 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 true Catholic self and express my my spiritual all my spiritual ideas and that's really beautiful that I get to have that opportunity so thank you Angelus News last week I wrote a piece about becoming an abuelita which means a little grandmother and let me read it to you abuelita Lalita my father's mother would give my sister and uh, and me a great treat every summer when we visited Miami from Mexico on Saturday mornings when she was not working at the jean factory she would take us downtown a trip which consisted of two bus rides preceded and followed by long walks and waits in the melting heat our destination was the Sears department store a veritable wonder house of goods in which a person could buy anything if they only had the money Abuelita Lalita would make a modest purchase, something she had thought long and hard about, invariably accompanied by a carefully folded advertisement from El Nuevo Herald, announcing a special low price that she pulled out of her purse. After that came our great moment, a hot dog and soda lunch at the counter of the adjacent 5 and 10. It was glorious. Abuelita Lalita has been on my mind a lot lately. My son's wife is expecting the very first child of the next generation of our family in March, a little girl who's making something new out of each of us. Father, mother, uncle, abuelita. These are total transformations, like the ones that nature accomplishes every time a swimmy tadpole becomes a landlocked frog. It may be most remarkable in the case of the new mother and father, but my own becoming abuelita feels just as momentous to me. 
The child is granting me a whole new identity in the proper sense of the word. I am taking on a novel role, forming a new permanent bond, moving up a generation, acquiring even a fresh name. I am receiving at her little hands a whole new set of duties and responsibilities. It has made me reconsider the whole concept of identity, which we hear about constantly, usually attached to broad categories like sex, race, and nationality. This entirely misses the real source of identity, which is relational, and its nature, which is distinct. Human beings are not simply interchangeable members of a particular affinity group, like checkers, that can be shifted around a board. We are unique persons who manifest our individuality more fully with each personal bond we make, whether chosen or unchosen. We are, each of us, the unrepeatable center of a vast web of human connections. And in each strand, properly acknowledged and lived, is the source not only of individuality, but of real fulfillment and meaning. We know this instinctively. When asked who we are, we respond, I am so-and-so's wife, or that person's father, or my sister's sister. If we go to the deepest, most fundamental source of our identity, we can each answer, in truth, I am an irreplaceable child of God. As God exists in, relation, in a relationship of three persons creating eternally together, and as we are made in his image, we flourish exactly in the measure in which we love and are loved. This is why the saddest person imaginable is one who loves no one and is unaware of the great love God has for him or her. That kind of loneliness is not compatible with life. The rugged individualist who will not be beholden to anyone, the cynic who considers all human dealings transactional, the armchair Darwinist who sees others chiefly as opponents in the struggle for existence, these are all the types who deny the relational essence of man. Perhaps at bottom is a rejection of the burdens that each human connection lays upon us. To love someone is to act on their claims on us. For companionship, tenderness, encouragement, correction, material assistance, the list goes on. And their claims cannot be set aside for being inconvenient or ill-timed, or even for requiring some great sacrifice from us. I can't tell for sure what claims upon her Abuelita Lalita was, for, was fulfilling when she took two little girls with her to Sears, on those hot Saturday mornings. Maybe she was helping my mother a little by taking two of the children for a few hours. Perhaps she knew how hard it was for my sister and I to be all day in her little government apartment where it wasn't safe to play outside. I imagine she found our joy at the lunch counter with its red revolving stools infectious and that that joy sustained her on our weary return journey. What I do know for certain is that she was the irreplaceable and unforgettable center of a complex web of loving relationships. And that's exactly what I'm hoping to be too when I become an abuelita. Joining me now is my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Thank you for joining us, Maureen. Hi, Gracie. Great to be on with you today. And we also welcome Brian Close, Director of Education yeah. and Research at Human Life International, who uh, an organization which will be having um, uh, a, a prominent presence at the March for Life this this year, which uh, is right now when you hear this uh, record when you hear this. Uh, radio interview, which we are recording a couple days uh, before the march, and the march will be going on. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us, Human Life International, what will you be highlighting at the March for Life this year? 
Well, we'll be at the Expo for a couple of days. We'll have nice table there and all kinds of materials to pass out to people. We're also going to be attending the the Thursday, I believe it's the 18th of January, Pro-Life Leaders Meeting with uh, Bishop Burbage of uh, the Arlington Diocese, and we get to do a lot of good networking of this kind of thing. And uh, what we're going to be trying to do is to spread the word on what's going on in the world today, because uh, at HLI we have worked in the past in 167 different countries, and we've traveled like 22 million miles uh, on hundreds and hundreds of foreign trips. So we've been all over the world, we've seen what's going on, we've talked to the parliamentarians and the people, the doctors and the nurses, uh, the priests and the bishops, uh, the principals and the teachers and all those people. We have a pretty good grip on what's going on in the world today. So many of us that live here in the U.S. tend to think so much about the domestic pro-life movement, but it's easy to forget what's going on around the world, and it's easy to not focus on the very sad fact that the U.S. is one of the greatest exporters of abortion around the world because there are still so many countries in the world that um, hold to the sanctity of human life. Many countries in Africa, many Latin countries, some Muslim countries really place a high value on the lives of the unborn and have laws that protect them. So can you explain to us how it is that the U.S. government um, exports abortion essentially as part of our foreign aid program and how it is that we end up pressuring these countries to liberalize their abortion policy? Well, uh, we do it under a cloud of lies. Uh, that's the first thing, the propaganda you see, like uh, smaller families will mean a richer nation. That's never been the truth in any country in the world. And they also say that uh, illegal abortions kill up to a million women every year all over the world. The actual total is in several hundreds, although we don't know exactly how many. So first we put out this net of propaganda, and what we're really trying to do is hold down the population of these developing countries, especially Africa, as laid out in the 1974 blueprint for the United States Population Control Program, which was NSSM 200, or National Security Study Memorandum 200, which was written under the tutelage and the direction of Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State at that time and just died about a month ago. May God rest his soul. In any case, what we want to do, according to NSSM 200, is to hold down the populations of these countries so we can get our hands on their natural resources. It says that right in the document. And it's online, NSSM 200. Anybody can read it for themselves. So it's a usual scam. You know, we're the government of the United States. We're here to help you. And meanwhile, while they're holding down the population of those countries, we take their natural resources from them. That's the whole thing wrapped up in a neat little package. That's incredibly cynical and racist. Uh, if, if that's if that was actually our world, our policy internationally, and if it's if it's going on right now, how is it that 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 side of the the, the racist side of it doesn't occur to people? 
when we here in the United States, um, we focus so much on, on anti-racism and then we say, oh, but, you know, in other countries where people have darker skins, like in Africa, those children, you know, abortion should be practiced more avidly. Well, that's how the uh, Marxists work. To take over, they get people fighting each other in a country like the United States. So we have class wars, race wars, age wars, you know, uh, male against female wars, uh, LGBT, everybody's all agitated and fighting each other. And so nobody pays attention to what's happening outside their own little bubble. And you're right about the racism of it all. If you look at the amount of population control donations to the regions of the world by the rich nations, you see that uh, countries in Asia is about $9 per person. Middle East, $11 a person. South America, $11 a person. Eastern Europe, about $14 a person. Then when you get to the dark-skinned nations of Africa, it's $90 a person. And the Caribbean... Uh, Caribbean, $114. Now, we don't really care for the health of these countries because in Africa, you see that 330 million people don't have clean drinking water. They don't have drink clean drinking water, and that's the number one health measure. It expands the life expectancy and the health of the people more than any other measure to get them clean drinking water. Now, the United States and these other countries have spent $133 billion, that's alien with a B, controlling the population of Africa since 1991. With that money, every African could have had clean drinking water. So instead of giving them clean drinking water, which is uh, the greatest thing we could do for their health, we pretend to try to care for their health and saying, well, we're going to try to save women's lives. They're taken by illegal abortion. We're going to legalize abortion all over Africa. So you can see the racist shell game that's going on there. If we really cared about Africans, we give them these real health measures instead of trying to cut down their numbers. Brian, I have a do- an adopted daughter from China. And when, in many, many occasions, I've spoken about the, the huge, horrible injustice of the first, the one-child policy and how many countries bought into that and helped China perpetrate that, even our country at some point, um, oh, yeah. through, through different means, through our, with our tax dollars, they say, well, there were just too many people in China. And so there is this idea, and probably people feel the same way about India and Africa, there's, there's a point at which there's just too many people in an area. What do you say to that? Well, that's something that uh, has been hailed among the elites in the United States for more than a century by now. Uh, It started out in 1922 when Lothrop Stoddard, a Harvard professor, wrote a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. And you can find that online, too, the whole book. And it says in there that we need natural resources in the United States, and the white race is being displaced by all these black Africans and all the people of color in Asia. And uh, technically, he's true, because white people aren't having babies as much anymore. All the Africans still have these beautiful, joyful families. I've been there 35 times now, and the Africans just love children. And if you can't have a child because you're infertile, it's considered to be a really fundamental curse. 
So all the way back in 1922, Lothrop started talking about how white people are just going to get outpopulated by people who are not white. And interestingly, Lothrop Stoddard sat on the board of Margaret Sanger's Birth Control League, which is now the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, which situates most of its abortion mills in high minority areas. So abortion is really a very racist program, not only overseas, but here in the United States. So so the Pope has referred to this as cultural imperialism, which is um, a great succinct uh, way of saying it. Um, but could you walk our listeners through how this happens, how our foreign policy does this, how our billions of dollars in foreign aid over the years, instead of going to clean drinking water or conditioning help for things like clean drinking water on liberalization of abortion policy. Um, how is it that the U.S. government does that? And would you mind just walking us through a little bit the history of the public policy on this? It's, I know the Helms Amendment, I think, is still in force, and that says we can't directly fund abortions overseas. But then there's the secondary um, sort of less obvious way of funding organizations that promote abortion as a method of population control. And that's the trickier money to control. And that's the policy which used to be known as the Mexico City policy. Now it's known yes. as protecting life and global health. But, but that policy seems to just ping pong back and forth based on whether you have a a pro-life president or a pro-abortion president. So, so under the current administration, of course, we're funding um, international organizations which are going in to promote abortion in these countries that don't want abortion. It goes against their cultural norms. So can you explain to us how that happens? It's, uh, it goes all the way back to Reverend Thomas Maltos, who talked about the principle of population, and that was back in the late 1700s. He got his ideas, believe it or not, from Marquis de Sade, who was the first pro-abortionist who went public. So he's the spiritual father of the pro-abortion movement and population control movement, Marquis de Sade. We come up to the current uh, age, 1974 again, NSSM 200 said that the United States cannot directly give money to other countries in order to hold down their populations. It'll be seen as racist. So what they do is they fund these big non-governmental organizations. And there are many of them, International Planned Parenthood Federation, Marie Stopes International, Family Health International. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of these enormous multi-billion dollar organizations that get the money not only from the United States, but from European nations, Canada, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so on. They get billions of dollars every year, and what they do, it's very clever, is they hire for very high salaries people from the elite in the targeted country, like Nigeria, perhaps. You might have some with a lot of uh, media experience. They hire them at very high salaries and say, okay, we want you to run the local chapter of Marie Stopes, and we'll give you money to start promoting condoms, sterilization, all kinds of birth control and abortion. So the people there see a fellow Nigerian saying, 
that if you have many children, your family will be poor and the nation will be poor. It's not healthy for the mother and so on, all of this propaganda. And the people start accepting these these evils from this guy who is actually a traitor to his own country. And so that's how it's done. You know, in summary, we give money to the NGOs and non-governmental organizations. They set up these people in various countries to preach the gospel of sterility, the anti-gospel of sterility to their own people. And that's the way they do it. That is so tragic, Brian. And, and what a terrible thing to export to, to, to countries and to cultures and societies which are so much more joyful than ours. I'm sure there's yeah, a, lot less, a lot less mental children cutting themselves and having mental health breakdowns in, in, these, in yeah. these countries than in ours. Yeah, you see, uh, I spend a lot of time in Africa and Asia, and the larger families tend to be the happier ones because uh, there's nothing richer than a family that has a lot of love in it. And these poor people, you know, in England, you see these girls who, when they reach the age of consent, 18, on their 18th birthday, they schedule a sterilization. They have a sterilization party. Huh? That's a kind of, yeah, that's a kind of, uh, this was all written up in Marie Claire magazine a few years ago, I think. One of these uh, young women's magazines. Yeah, they have sterilization parties. They schedule it ahead of time because they never want to have children. So their 18th birthday, they have a cake. They go get the procedure done. They have a big party. Now contrast that to the uh, the people who you know are in Africa, the Philippines, and rest of uh, Asia who have lots of kids, and these countries tend to be happier because they don't put their trust in things and in riches. They put their trust in God and in big families. And the uh, since I've been all over to these countries, uh, many many times, over a hundred times, uh, the contrast is extremely vivid. Brian, tell us, what are some of the things that Human Human Life International does to counter this? It's I, I've read that you, you know, for example, provide pro-life education in the schools in Malawi. You offer uh, life-affirming pregnancy counseling in Mexico. You train nurses to help expectant mothers in Nigeria, which you mentioned, um, equipping parents for adoption. Uh, give us some specific examples of how Human Life International goes into these countries that are really targeted um, and help them to choose life-affirming options? Yeah, it's a high, medium, low approach. Uh, you know, for high-level people like the parliamentarians, we often meet with them. With the lower level, the common people like us, we go out there and we organize marches. But most of all, we go for the middle, which are the people who, you know, are not as high as the parliamentarians, but they have some skills and a position whereby during their entire lives, they're going to affect thousands of other people. So especially we talk to bishops, priests, and seminarians. We visit a lot of seminaries and equip them with what they need to be, you know, a pro-life priest or 50 more years. We talk to principals and teachers. We talk to medical doctors and nurses, people like that, the middle-level managers in any society, the ones who are going to directly, face-to-face, -face, impact thousands of other people throughout their lives. So that's primarily what we do, educate those people. Well, Brian, we are out of, all out of time, but where can our listeners learn more about Human Life International and your great work? 
Well, all you need to do is go to our website at hli.org. Very simple to remember, hli.org. Thank you so much, Brian Klaus, from the Director of Education and Research at Human Life International. Good luck at the March for Life. I hope that a lot of people learn there about your wonderful work and that more go to the website. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers a short and inspiring homily for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, when we will enter into the dramatic scene of what he said and did at the beginning of his public ministry. He preached his first homily, just 18 words in English, 16 words in St. Mark's Greek original, and then entered into a short but life-altering conversation on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with two sets of brothers who had become key collaborators in how he would change the world. In these words and interactions, Jesus sets forth for believers of every age the various consequences he hopes for in his personal interaction with us. Let's enter the scene, beginning with Jesus' homily, what he as God had been waiting since the fall to announce. In his first public words, Jesus, the word made flesh, declared, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus first announces two essential facts. The first, the time is fulfilled. Jesus says that the time of waiting is over. The fullness of time has come. Therefore, now, not later, is is time to act. Now, as St. Paul would later say, is the day of salvation. The second fact is the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus declares that the long-awaited kingdom of God has arrived. God's presence was erupting in the time to enter his kingdom. The time to share in his reign is today. Much like he would do in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth after reading the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah when he proclaimed today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So in his first homily at the Galilean Sea, Jesus could say that his words about the fulfillment of time and the coming of God's kingdom were coming to fruition in him right there and then. After these two table-setting facts, Jesus turns to four ways we're supposed to respond to this awesome reality. These are the four conditions for entering and living in his kingdom. These are the four action verbs we need to do in order not to waste the time God has given us, but make the most of it. The first action is repent. The second, believe. The third, follow. And the fourth, fish. Now is the time, Jesus was saying, to do all four. Let's examine each of these realities in turn and ask ourselves whether we've been heeding Jesus' message. First verb is repent. In Greek, this word is metanoete, which etymologically means a total revolution of our mind, of the way we look at things. It's a call to conversion, to think no longer as everyone else thinks, to do no longer as everyone else does, but to put on the mind of God, to align our head, heart, and actions to his. It's a summons to compare ourselves to God rather than everyone else, to recognize that we're not yet living enough as the image and likeness of God. For some people, this call will mean a 180-degree turn. For others, it might mean a 50 or a 10-degree turn. But all of us need this conversion, and we're always going to need it. The Christian life is one of continual conversion, which we literally learn how to convert or turn with Jesus in all parts of our life. As Jesus turns to the, in prayer to the Father, we turn with him. 
As he turns with charity to our neighbor, we turn with him. As he turns with mercy to a family member who has sinned against him and against us, we too turn with mercy. This call to make continual metanoia means that we're incessantly seeking to change for the better, to become more and more like the Lord, who calls us to that penance and renewal. That's the first consequence of the encounter with Jesus in the fullness of time. The second verb is believe. To believe means not just to accept something is true. To believe means totally to submit oneself to a reality on the base of a trust in someone testifying to that reality. To believe in Jesus means to entrust ourselves completely to him and on that foundation ground our lives fully in what he says. Our Christian life is meant to be marked by this type of faith. Because of our trust in Jesus, we believe in what he tells us about the path to happiness in the Beatitudes, what he believes to us about God the Father, what he says about his presence in the Holy Eucharist, what he did when he sent out his apostles and the successor for the forgiveness of sins and confession. We believe in what he says about caring for others as if we were caring for him, about praying for our persecutors and even loving our enemies. To believe in him, to believe in the gospel he enunciates and fleshes means truly to seek to grow both in our intellectual knowledge of the gospel and our putting it into practice. This Sunday is the Sunday of the Word of God, a new observance created in 2020 by Pope Francis to help us all grow in intimate familiarity with the sacred scripture, to appreciate the inexhaustible riches contained in that dialogue between the Lord and his people, to experience anew how the risen Lord opens for us the treasury of his word and enables us to proclaim its unfathomable riches before the world. Faith comes through hearing, and we grow in faith through the gift of hearing the word of God. And so on this Sunday of the word of God, we seek to live with faith off every word that comes from Jesus' mouth because we believe, as St. Peter would confess, that Jesus has the words of eternal life. The third verb is follow me or come after me. Jesus says these words to Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John in the gospel, and they immediately leave their nets, their boats, their fish, their employees, and their families to follow Jesus. They were open to the type of revolution in the way they looked at their life that is contained in Jesus' words, repent and believe. And they believed in Jesus already enough to leave all they had and knew to base their entire life on his word, calling them to follow him. Likewise, for us, it's not enough to repent and to believe because the Lord Jesus always calls us to follow him in faith, turning back our back on other things. The Christian life features this type of discipleship, which we focus on following the Lord Jesus rather than leading him and calling him the shots. It means following him into the dark valleys and up steep mountains, retracing his steps up close in the way of the cross all the way to heaven. To be Jesus' disciple means to become with Jesus' help more and more like him. That's the third consequence of our encounter with him as we seek to enter and remain in his kingdom. And the fourth verb is fish. Jesus says in the gospel that if we follow him, I will make you fishers of men. He wanted to form Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be apostles, to share the gospel, to spread the faith, to draw others to him with his words, with his deeds of healing and exorcism, ultimately with his very presence in the sacraments. But we, when we repent and believe, when we become Jesus' true followers rather than fans, 
then we have a burning desire to go to others, like Andrew did last week to Simon, his brother, and say, we have found the Messiah. The time is fulfilled. The door of the kingdom of heaven is open. Now, a new life with God with us is possible. Come, experience that new life. And then we show them how to enter into that new life through repentance, faith, discipleship, and apostolate. When Peter, Andrew, James, and John heard Jesus' words and received his personal call, their whole life changed. It was a truly consequential conversation. This Sunday, Jesus wants to have a similarly momentous dialogue with us. In the fullness of time, right now, the Lord is summoning us to conversion and faith, and has chosen us to be his followers and fishers of men. In the midst of a broken country that needs the light of the gospel now as much as ever, in the midst of a church in which there's a need for repentance, greater faith, more loyal discipleship, and more ardent apostolate, you and I are part of Jesus' response. He's summoning us to live and announce the reality that Christ the King and his kingdom are at hand, that he's calling us to a new life and showing us the way. Let us seize the gift of the kingdom, and like Peter, Andrew, James, and John before us, dedicate ourselves to helping others to seize it too. God bless you. As we come to the close of the show, we thank you again for joining us this week on Conversations with Consequences, especially this particular week as tens of thousands march for life in Washington, D.C. on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. We take a moment to reflect on the many challenges before us as pro-life Catholics as Christians who really believe in that spectacular idea that every single human being is created by a loving God in his own image, that all of us are brothers and sisters from the smallest, tiniest embryo in the womb to the beautiful older men and women who are entering the last stages of life. All of us owe each other every bit of dignity and respect that we can muster up. As Christians, as Catholics, we take our respect for life to the to the highest levels because those little unseen brothers and sisters that exist inside their mothers, whose voices we can't hear, whose skin we can't touch, whose beautiful features we can't see with our eyes, although I can see them with ultrasound, those little brothers and sisters are worthy of all our devotion and respect and also of all our efforts to keep them safe and help their mothers and fathers welcome them into what can be a very hard world. So. With that, I leave you and thank you again for being our listeners and we continue to pray for you always.